we've been looking at this over the last few weeks and different people have been preaching really well around this theme of the acts of the disciple. Be careful, Jesus says, not to do your acts of righteousness, quote unquote, in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored uh, by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then your Father, who sees what's done in secret, will reward you. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who's unseen. And then your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others your sins, their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast... Don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others their fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. So it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father who's unseen. And your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Well, today I want to bring this little series, uh, sort of wind it up a little bit really, but think about fasting. When I was thinking about preparing for the sermon today and thinking through the whole of the passage, I wonder whether you will go with me on this. Would you agree that it's inconceivable that you would be a disciple of Jesus who never prays? If someone came to you and says, I follow Jesus, I'm a Christian, but I never ever pray, would you think there's a disconnect there? There's clearly a disconnect there. It's kind of like, well, I don't know what you mean by that, really. Because if you never pray, it's kind of like you're just kind of holding on to something in your head. But there's no heart. There's no hearing from God or even sharing your life with God. And we would go, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure. If someone came to you and said, um, or if you knew them, they probably wouldn't tell you this. But if you spotted them and they were always very mean and very tight and very lacking in generosity. There was no hint of grace or generosity about them at all. Would that be a problem if they said, actually, I'm a follower of Jesus? (laughs) Now, we might say to one another, actually, we struggle with these things, but the, the whole point of struggling is that actually I'm trying. But if you were saying, actually, no, I I refuse to offer anything to anybody because it's every man for himself. You might genuinely think, I think there's a problem here. You've probably misunderstood what it is to be a Christian. Well, you probably know where I'm going next. So if you never fast, is that a problem? (laughs) 
<laughs> it's all gone quiet over there. Um, it's kind of, you can see, and I was thinking this through. Is this sort of like just a, this is a, you know, my own thoughts, really. Because what Jesus seems to do is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which is his big manifesto about what's life like for the kingdom disciple, he, he's done, in chapter 5, a lot of work about our gut reactions to anger and to lust and to generosity and to forgiveness. All of those things have come up in that fifth chapter. And then he turns in the sixth chapter and he starts looking at the way you practice, the way we practice our faith. And the three things he assumes, he doesn't even tell disciples to do these, he just assumes these are the three practices you're going to be involved with. Firstly, you're going to be generous. Secondly, you're going to pray. And thirdly, you're going to fast. Well, it's not unusual and it's not surprising because he comes from this background of Judaism. Jewish believers fasted. It's kind of like in the psyche, it's what they did. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, those who follow me, oh, you don't need to do that anymore. And indeed, what we know about the early church is that they did fast. And actually, if you start looking at the whole of Scripture, you come against it time and time again. Times when people just set times aside to pray and fast. The reason we don't do it is because it makes us hungry. And it feels difficult. Someone's written about generosity. God doesn't want your careful virtue. He wants your reckless generosity. We've looked at that. And Arthur did a cracking job of actually exploring that with us. What does generosity look like? And he's put that word reckless in. And some of us go, that's a dangerous word. But actually, I think he's, he's accurate at that point. It's about reckless generosity. It's, in other words, it's not just generosity in which you're going to get something back. But it's like, I'll give. And I, I actually am not looking for a return on this. We've looked at prayer. God is doing nothing less, someone's written. German theologian, in the middle of the Second World War, by the interest, interestingly, was writing about prayer. And he said, God is doing nothing less than offering to his praying church a part in his government of his world. That's what prayer's about. It's not just, God, can you come close to me? But actually, God's doing nothing less than offering to his praying church a part in his government of his world. It's kind of like you're engaging with God, and when you pray, may your kingdom come, you're saying, God, we want it to be different around here. And so God says, okay, well, join me in this. Pray for the kingdom. Pray for all that you see possibly coming through. Now, this is, uh, this is Tony Maslin's dinner this week. Um, uh, those of you that are on Facebook, and uh, if, if Tony's a friend, you know that Tony is a member of our church, and he travels a lot with his work, and he's got this habit of always posting what he's eating, which is a strange sort of activity. But um, So when I saw this, I, was, I thought, this will do. Fasting. There's nothing on that plate, unless you're vegetarian, um, that looks bad, to be honest. <laughs> eh? That's a pork chop. I think this is just, I think this is a light break uh, for Tony um, in, in his work. And what we're saying fasting is, and just to make it really clear, um, that in the Bible, fasting was not just switching the telly off for a while or going without your mobile phone or all that sort of stuff. Though there may be interesting parallels to say, how do we actually um, limit? some of the things that we've grown to depend upon. But actually, fasting was simply 
days on which you said, we're not going to engage in this. I mean, it's as simple as that. It's just there will be days when we won't eat. As a society, we have a strange relationship with food, don't we? At the one hand, we've got TV programs like MasterChef and all of that sort of thing. On the other hand, we've got glossy magazines all about food. And at the same time, we've also got magazine articles and TV programs about we're just not sure about what's good food and what's bad food. You might be watching one of the programs, there's a series of four about the problem of sugar and finding where sugar is. It's in everything. And actually, we have a strange relationship with our food. The truth is, every week, probably nearly every day, someone's writing a new piece to say, this is good for you, that's not good for you. And it's actually really difficult as just lay people to work out, what are we eating and is it good and, and how do we know what's, what's really good? You know, is a glass of wine good? Is a glass of wine not good? Is red meat good? Is not red meat not good? Is chicken? Da -de -da -de -da -de -da. Strange relationship with food. It's our greatest delight. And sometimes as a society, it's our greatest concern. And as a society, we're asking ourselves, how do you live healthily? And in a sense, the whole story of Judaism and uh, certainly of early Christianity was this idea of how do you live healthily before God? What's, what does a healthy life look like with God? Well, the normal practice for Jewish people was this, that you'd fast twice a week. That during the midweek, there were two days in which you didn't fast. And some of you will remember the story of the Pharisee who goes to the temple and says, I'm, gl I'm glad, God, that I'm not like everybody else because I fast twice a week. And then there's the guy at the back going, I'm rubbish. I'm an I'm a, I'm, I'm a unclean sinner. And God says, I'm not that impressed simply with fasting when it's linked with arrogance. I'm much more interested in your heart. Two things, though. Firstly, it was never stop fasting. It was always make sure your fasting doesn't become a means of something else. The other thing that I kind of find interesting is that the two-day fast per week, which was basic general Jewish behavior and early Christian behavior, what they did was, and I can't remember exactly what the two days were for, for Jews without looking it up, but there were two days when the Jews did. So when the early church were getting going, what they did is said is, we'll do two days, but we'll do two other days. <laughs> So to, we kind of like mark ourselves out as being a little different. So they do Monday and Wednesday, we'll do Tuesday and Thursday. But they kept the practice. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it? That until uh, you know, a couple of years ago, perhaps, when Michael Mosley comes on television and says, actually, if you fast two days a week, you will be healthier, your, 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 your blood pressure is healthier, your heart is healthier, you live longer, and you lose weight. And we'll now call it the 5-2 diet. And what they're doing is they're rediscovering something that's ancient practice. It's not new. This was actually how do you live a long and healthy life. And if you're interested, Michael Mosley did that brilliant program, which we all thought, gosh, yes, and we tried it for three weeks. Um, and then found it made us hungry. Um, but the Jews came in and they just sort of did that thing of actually two days a week. You simply don't eat. Now, of course, there's a difficulty at the heart of this. If you want to get fit, one of the ways you can do it is you can go to the gym. And it strikes me, there's one of the outcomes of that fitness is you get some people in gyms who just go to be bodybuilders. 
all right? And they just go and you, they admire themselves. Some guys, particularly guys, they do this for hours on end and effectively it's just, don't I look beautiful? And it strikes me as the very worst of the reason to go to the gym. It's kind of like, can, you, can I get some approval? And Jesus is talking in the context of where do you get your approval from? And he's aware that actually you can engage in some Christian practices in order that other people might think well of you, or indeed, God might think well of you. I was reading this book uh, last week called Life You've Always Wanted by John Ortberg. I would really recommend this. Uh, It's a really straightforward read um, about some of the, the Christian disciplines. And if any of you want to borrow it, Um, afterwards you're welcome to come and take this one. But he talks about this thing called approval addiction. And he writes this. Some people live in bondage to what other people think of them. The addiction takes many forms. If we find ourselves getting hurt by what others say about us often, or if by people expressing other than glowing opinions about us, we probably have it. If we habitually compare ourselves with other people, if we find ourselves getting competitive in the most ordinary situations, we probably have it. If we live with this nagging sense that we aren't important enough or special enough, or if we get envious of another person's success, we probably have it. If we keep trying to impress important people, we probably have it. If we're worried that someone might think ill of us, should he or she find out uh, we are an approval addict, we probably are. Like other addicts, we'll go to great lengths to get a fix when we feel desperate. Yet like other addicts, we find that no fix lasts forever. So we keep coming back for more. And he wrote another little paragraph that says this, (laughs) that that struck home to me for obvious reasons. An approval addicts, as approval addicts, we're always at the mercy of others' opinion. Hence the old preacher's story. Uh, This is the preacher speaking. I was leaving my last church and a woman at the farewell reception was weeping. I said to her, don't be sad. I'm sure the next pastor will be better than me. And she said, that's what they said last time, but they keep getting worse. (laughs) But that sense of looking for approval, am I okay? And Jesus says, actually, that approval addiction can be one of the killers in Christian circles. If you're going to fast, who are you really going to do it for? Don't do it so that people think you're great. Don't do it so that God thinks you're great. Do it because actually you recognize you're being shaped in a certain way. You can do the sort of the gym stuff in order that you might look great and other people think, wow, what a body. Or you can do the gym stuff so that when you get to a certain age and you go to wedding parties or birthday parties, you can still dance. I actually mean that. You can keep yourself fit so that actually you can improvise. You can still bend to the floor and pick things up without your back going. In other words, you can keep yourself healthy in order to be able to respond spontaneously in later life. I think a disciple is someone who's learning to live the way of Jesus in their situation at this moment. I think that's what a disciple is. And a disciple is shaped by certain practices that enable you to know how to respond. 
You're simply, a disciple is not someone who's good at church stuff, and a disciple is not someone who's good at the Bible stuff. A disciple is someone who's learning to live. I know how to live in this context. I'm learning the way of Jesus in my situation. And your situation and my situation, number one, are different, but secondly, they keep changing. First time you got a job, your situation changed. The first time you were given responsibility for other people at work, what does it mean to follow the way of Jesus now? First time you were made redundant. First time you were diagnosed with a serious illness. When you first had children or grandchildren. Or when you retired. What does it look like to be obedient to Jesus now in my context? That keeps changing. And these practices of generosity and prayer and fasting are really about how do you live as a disciple so that actually in any context you're kind of aware of what God's doing able to hear what he's saying and know how to respond. So what's fasting about? The first thing is about humility. We come and we fast, and the Bible all the way through, from the beginning to the end, people who are fasting are demonstrating an active dependence on God. Ultimately, people who are fasting are going, God, I need you. And, and if it doesn't sound too simplistic, I need you more than I need food. I need you more than I need food. I need you more than the regular rhythm. I need you more than the natural stuff. God, I need you. The second thing is, it's an attitude of openness. I don't know whether this rings true for some of you, but... Do some of you understand what I mean by when you get hungry, some of the worst traits of your character come out? <laughs> some of you looking at other people, yeah, it does. <laughs> Is that the grumpiness or the irritability? And one of the interesting things about fasting is actually it allows you to own up because that was always there, it was just masked. And the long history of the church is that this willingness for short periods of time to say, actually, I'm going to put aside food, enables you to own up to who you are. We see this with all sorts of things, don't we? If you don't get enough sleep, if you don't get enough food, if you don't get enough of all the things you genuinely and legitimately need, it's not that there's anything wrong with that. But actually, if that simply masks that irritability, that grumpiness, those characteristics, then maybe in fasting we come and say, God, this is actually who I am, and I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't represent you well if the only thing that's stopping me being irritable is the next meal. And the third attitude is the attitude of expectancy. This sense of an openness to God and what he might say and an openness of the breakthrough, the prayers that go with it. Those moments where you go, God, if you don't show up, if you don't do something, I don't know what we're going to do next. That fasting for others that say, God, those people are in such a mess. God, will you work with them? And I, it's almost, and it sounds grandiose, and I don't mean it like that, but it's almost like you set yourself aside and you say, I'll stand 
I'll stand before God for them. God, I want you to break into their lives, so I will take the stand. I'll pay a very small cost that you would do something there. Fasting makes us open to God and aware of what he's doing. So, here's the, here's the final slide and the stinger. <laughs> okay, the question is, for those of you who have never done it, are you going to start? And for those of us who have done it in the past but haven't done it for a while, are you going to do it again? Otherwise, I'm just wasting words and breath here. And as you've spotted earlier in the service, they don't come easy sometimes. <laughs> so I'm preaching to myself as well as with you and to you. But here are five things. Firstly, start small and build up. Start small. So miss, miss your lunch tomorrow. Now, the only people who shouldn't do this is if you're on medication that means if you miss a meal, you can't take your medication and then you get really sick. Okay? So you know your own body, so you've got to watch that. So we're not asking for stupidity or for daftness, but we're actually asking you to be able to recognize your own situation. This is not a call for you all to go to the doctors at 9 o'clock in the morning and say, am I ill? Because I'd like to take some medication so I don't have to miss a meal. <laughs> but there is that sense of just start small. You know, I'm not great at it, but my experience is this. It's actually easier to go a whole day than it is just to miss your lunch. That's actually my experience. But it starts small. Secondly, find a rhythm. The Jews and the early Christians had a rhythm every week. They did it for two days. And I know people who do that, and they just do it, and you'd never know. They don't make a deal out of it. But find a rhythm. For some of you, it'll be... Certain days during the week. For others of you, it'll be certain times of the year. <laughs> For some of you thinking about it, it'll be, yep, I want to do this at the end, uh, the beginning of March every year. Um, <laughs> so you don't have to think about it for a while. But it's kind of like finding the rhythm of, of life. What is a rhythm that you could actually sustain? Thirdly, never ask, do I feel like doing this? And don't wait until you do, because you never will. So just never ask, do I really feel like doing this? Because if you wait for that moment, it'll never happen. It's like that with prayer or giving or anything. Fourth, ditch any intensity. You know, Jesus was talking very specifically. So if he says, if you're going to fast, don't be bothering with ashes all over your head and uh, worrying about your face and looking dead somber and looking, oh, yes, I'm, I'm really suffering for the Lord. Ditch it. Smile. Look well. Don't let anybody else know what's going on. This is not in order to make us into intense uh, saints who never smile. It's actually to be liberated people. Appear to be as though you're not doing it. And if you do have to break it, just break it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? If, if you're saying, I'm fasting, and then someone unexpectedly invites you for a meal, or they give you a meal when you're there, don't make a big... Oh, I can't, I'm afraid. No. Just lemon water for me. If they've made a meal for you, eat the thing. Just ditch it. Don't be stupid. And then finally, remember grace. If you fail, or actually you find stuff about yourself that you not that feel that great about, remember grace. So here's the thing. There's some, some sermons that kind of like when I'm preparing it, it's like, 
nah, this is probably good to know. There's some sermons that's like, that will end with, I think you probably need to find a moment where you can encounter God. And then there's other sermons that kind of finish with, well, are you going to do it? And I think this falls into the third category, really. You don't need to know about fasting. You just need to know, are you going to do it? And to be honest, truth be known, there's not many of us in the room that couldn't do it. But we don't make a deal out of it. We're not going to have a sign-up sheet. We're not going to be ringing around and say, at 12 o'clock, are you thinking of eating? But I have been really challenged again. As someone who's done it in the past, fairly regularly, and then hasn't done it for a while, I've just been really challenged again by that first set of thoughts that went through my mind. Could you be a non-praying Christian? Probably not. Would you be a non-generous Christian? Probably not. Would you be a non-fasting Christian? Hmm. <laughs> Maybe just for some of us, it's like a reminder that says, actually, it's about bringing our own lives and our own bodies before God and saying, God, will you help us? One last thing that would be really important for me to say, because it would be irresponsible not to, some people have a history of problems with food. And there is that sense that actually if you go a long time without food, you grow quite impressed with your own ability to control that. Because actually if you go a few days, you stop being hungry and then you end up anorexic. And that clearly is not where this is leading. So there's kind of like... Although on the one hand, it's easy for me to say quite blasé, there's nobody in the room that couldn't. Actually, there's some of you, and if you're going to do it, and you've had this issue in the past, you really do need to say to someone else, I'm going to do it, not in order that they might be impressed, but actually that might help you to ensure that it doesn't become an unhealthy grip again on your own body. And in a, any congregation of any size, there's always some people for whom that's been an issue in the past. And I want to say we recognize that and we're aware of that. But actually, just if you're going to do it, it's not a reason not to do it. But actually, if you're going to do it, make sure someone else knows and they're going to be keeping you accountable to eating again. For some of us, it's actually we need to be reminded to eat. <laughs> not reminded to stop eating. So I, I kind of like want to put that in just as sort of like a, a subtext. However, for many others of us, it's kind of like just a really straightforward sermon. Are you going to do it? And who knows what God might do? And that's the interesting thing. None of us know what God might do. I'm not setting myself up at any sort of expert on this at all, because I'm just like everybody else. I do it sometimes, and sometimes it feels great, and I see massive breakthroughs. And there's, I think there's been times over the, the, the years that I've been involved in the church here that there's been actual times when I could pinpoint breakthroughs that we've seen in church that I would like to believe that God engaged me in uh, as a result of fasting. I think there were times that kind of coordinated that. But I think there's other times when I've done it, and at the end of it, you just feel, well, I did it. I'm not sure what that was about, really. But that's okay. Because whenever you're training for anything, there's always moments like that. And because uh, one man in our room made this very public, 
I'm going to use Rob as an example. So Rob, uh, this week on Facebook, wrote down, my worst run ever. Because Rob's in training to do a, a marathon, stupid marathon up and down hills in Bolton, up and really tricky. And on, on his blog this week, he just saw his little note, he just wrote, worst run ever, what's happening to me? Why am I feeling this? But actually, look at the guy. He's healthy, he's fit, and he'll do the marathon and he'll succeed. But some weeks you just do it and you think, I'm not getting anywhere. So it is with fasting. Sometimes you do it and it's nothing. And other times you just see massive breakthrough. What you ought to maybe some of you think through is, I'm going to experiment. I'm going to live like this for a while. I'm going to see what might be possible. 